guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Skip. And I'm Kate, and we're very excited to have Professor Jack Raycove joining us here today. Professor Raycove is the William Robertson Co-Professor of History and American Studies and Professor of Political Science at Stanford University. His principal areas of interest include the origins of the American Revolution and Constitution, the political theories and practices of James Madison, and the role of historical knowledge in constitutional litigation. Thank you for joining us, Professor Raycove. Very happy to be here. So one of the most interesting things we've heard from other speakers on our show is this concept of inflection points, or points when people realize they needed to pivot, be it in their personal lives or their careers. With your education at Haverford and us here at Claremont McKenna, how do you see the liberal arts affecting your career and your life's trajectory? Well, I think in some ways I always took the liberal arts for granted. I came from an academic family. I went to a kind of an elite high school, an elite public high school on the north shore of uh, you know, north shore of the Chicago suburbs. I went off to, as you said, to Haverford College, um, you know, which was and remains an elite small college. So in a sense, I, I, my dad was a political scientist who you know, did his graduate work at the University of Chicago. I was actually born at the University of Chicago. <laughs> Uh, one day before the Marshall Plan, so you can figure out what my age is, or at least you can look it up <laughs> to figure out what it is. So in a sense, I think I always took the liberal arts uh, for granted. Uh, I just, you know, in a certain sense, I guess I want to say I had the right background, or you know, came from an academic family and the right set of institutions. So it wasn't something so much that they had to discover as something they had to learn how to practice. Okay, interesting. So if that's not a particularly pivotal point in your life, what is your uh, inflection point in your life then, do you think? Well, I suppose because they do things. I mean, there, was, there was a time when I was a kid, you know, an adolescent, when I thought, you know, maybe I practice law. Uh, I don't do that, although I have written, I have written some briefs and I, I also hang out in law schools. You know, I think in some ways the major turning point for me came when I went off to graduate school in the fall of 1969. I'd, I'd always assumed that I would uh, work on 20th century history, probably 20th century U.S. history. Yeah, I'd read a fair amount, you know, going back literally to when I was a kid, uh, you know, like going to the public library and stuff like that. Uh, so I thought I'd be a 20th century historian, but uh, the first day of, uh, at Harvard, I went to Harvard, uh, the Harvard Department of History, so the first day when I showed up, um, the guy who I thought might be my advisor, Frank Friedell, who was a well-known New Deal scholar, uh, told me that actually, rather than take his se seminar, I'd be better off if I took a seminar with the Professor Bernard Balin, you know, also known actually in the trade as Bud Balin, uh, who was uh, uh, the early Americanist, meaning he covered the 17th and 18th century, and who just won the Pulitzer Prize uh, a year earlier for his uh, uh, epical book, The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution. <laughs> so I went down and introduced myself to Professor Balin and said I wanted to take his seminar. And he said, sure, why not? And uh, so in a sense, I kind of fell under his dark star. And Balin's seminar was uh, a famous event. It, it really, it was very distinctive. Um, for one thing, you never knew from one week to the next what the real subject of discussion was. Uh, and the reason for that is Balin was much, was not primarily concerned with introducing uh, his field as such. It wasn't really about uh, learning the rudiments of doing early American history, whether you talk about colonization or the revolutionary period. It really was about problems of uh, analysis and exposition in historical writing. The whole point of it was to get you to try to figure out, A, what is a good historical problem? How do you define what a historical problem really is? 
Uh, and B, once you figure that out, how do you express yourself in analyzing it? So if I describe it this way, it sounds like, not that it was perfunctory, it doesn't sound like it was a big deal. But in fact, in the history of the Harvard, in the story of the Harvard History Department, uh, it had a transformative effect on, uh, you know, some scores of uh, uh, PhD students. So I became an early American. So the other thing I realized is some of the general questions I wanted to ask, which had to do with the relationship between political ideas and political experience, and that's essentially the, you know, the theme of my whole career is in some respects, that that was a great time to apply that general interest to the specific problems raised by the American Revolution. And so that was really late 60s, early 70s, and let's say the 1960s, early 1970s. That was a great period of work on the history of the American Revolution. And so I just kind of, so that was, if you need an inflection point, uh, that was probably it. I mean, I could think of a couple others down the road, but in terms of my basic interests. All right. Um, so with that, that you started focusing on earlier American history, um, several of our students have been learning in class recently about originalism and right. constitutional originalism. And we're very curious um, to hear what your thoughts are on differing the differing originalist interpretations in the DC versus Heller Supreme Court case. Ooh. Specifically, how can one decide whether Justice Scalia's inter originalist interpretation or Justice Stevens' interpretation is more valid, more legitimate? Well, it's easy for me because Justice Stevens cites me in dissent. <laughs> Scalia cites an article I did to kind of make a little fun of me, or probably his clerk did it. Um, so, uh, so in what sense, this is not her question. In some ways, it's really the subject of my lecture tonight. Uh, so I don't know, I'm sure there's no problem I keep talking about it here. So there are now um, kind of, well, there's a dominant theory of originalism, and there's the other point of view that I think I represent, which I call, for want of, better, for want of a better term, historical originalism. The dominant form of originalism today is, what, is what's known in the trade as semantic or public meaning originalism. And the premise of this mode of interpretation, which Scalia's opinion in Heller illustrates pretty well, uh, is that the goal of interpretation is to try to imagine what a uh, disinterested but infor informed, informed in the sense of linguistically informed reader, how would an intelligent reader understand um, you know, the, the clause in question? Uh, so how would he think about militia? How would he think about keep and bear? Uh, how would you define arms? What does it mean to bear arms? Uh, it is, in a sense, primarily, uh, semantic original is primarily a linguistic exercise. In that exercise, you can use historical materials, you know, the kind that I would develop, um, not to explain what happened for its own sake, but as illustrations of the linguistic points. In other words, so if you want, if you pull something out of the records of debate, well, you can't get it very much out of the records of debate on the on Second Amendment, obviously from the Constitutional Convention, but from the ratification debates or from the first federal Congress. So things said there are important not because they illustrate what the adopters of the amendment actually thought they were doing, they're important because they illustrate patterns of linguistic usage. Okay. The form of originalism that I prefer, and again, that I'm going to uh, try to defend at greater length this evening, uh, says that no, essentially we're dealing with a set of political decisions and that the proper framework of analysis is to try to figure out what did, what did the adopters, you know, that could be the, both the framers and the ratifiers of the amendment, 
And that gets into another aspect of the originalist debate, which between the two, which are more important, framers or ratifiers. But in any case, let's say they both qualify adopters sub one and adopters sub two. What did the adopters of the amendment think they were doing? There's no question in my mind that that's what my brief and a rather lengthy argument that I made in a, an essay called The Second Amendment, The Highest Stage of Originalism. Uh, knowing listeners might uh, realize there's a reference to Lenin there. Uh, that if you want, I could, you know, kind of a joke that I could expound on. But there's no question in my mind that the, the whole militia debate was not about a personal right of self-defense uh, or your right to kill either Indians or bears or you know, other kinds of culprits. Um, it really was primarily about the place of, of militia under the, you know, particularly under Article One, uh, Section 8, I think it's Clause 16 of the Constitution. Uh, so, there are two, so there are two very different versions. Um, the problem, I think the debate is about the way it is, is that uh, for one reason is not everyone has the patience or the skill to be a historian. Uh, you know, it takes a certain kind of temperament to think that history provides, you know, some set of answers, uh, Pericles, uh, you know. There, there is a kind of historical intelligence. Not everyone has it, uh, for better or for worse. I'd argue for worse, but on the other hand, it makes it easier for me to practice my trade. Otherwise, the market would be flooded, <laughs> right? And that, that, that would be bad. Um, but I think the larger problem is that if you approach it from a historical point of view, um, you, you may have a, a version of what I call a collective action problem in the sense that uh, it may be hard to kind of reach consensus as to what people actually thought. You know, if you're a historian, that's fine. You know, it's fine to describe debate and say there are multiple points of view, but if you're laboring under the goal or some might say the delusion that you can come up with, you know, a one best meaning, you might get a lot of frustration from that. So I think the idea of semantic public meaning or so-called linguistic originalism uh, it's partly it's a reaction to the frustration that uh, historical originalism might evoke in people who try to practice it. Uh, I was going to follow up on that: is how can you avoid historical cherry picking? How can you make it seem like you're really taking into account everyone's opinions versus just picking ones that seem to support whichever argument? Well, this is also, this is what historians call law office history. Okay. So that's that's a common phrase we use to say. You know, if you if you have a, if you have a prior position, you know you're committed for, you know, you're representing a client, or you know you're you're a, you know some kind of hooker for the National Rifle Association or whatever. <laughs> you know you have a prior commitment you're trying to defend, and your job is to tell your clerk or your associate researcher to get me a site, you know, find me some find me some source material. If you're a story, you have to you have to work your way through the sources, and you have to be intellectually honest about it, uh, and you have to you know you have to deal with the sources you know one way or another, which are sources which may point in a different direction. I mean, there are there are a handful of references. Go back to the Second Amendment. There are a handful of um, you know statements in the existing record, the extant record, you know, which is amply documented because there were like twenty five volumes and counting. What was called the Documentary History of the Ratification of the Constitution. Uh, so there are a couple which point to an individual notion. There's one that comes out of the so-called dissent of the Pennsylvania minority, the anti-federalist delegates in the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Ratification Convention. Uh, something comes out of the New Hampshire Ratification Convention. You know, one or two other things, which you know, you know, do suggest you know uh, a kind of individualistic-oriented interpretation. 
But those statements became objects of lampoonery, if, if that word exists, you know, objects of, <laughs> objects of derision. And I think the anti-federalists kind of abandoned it. The bulk of the citations, both there and then, you know, in the, you know, the, in, in the debates in the First World Congress, they really were about the militia. So Justice Kennedy's exclamation in oral arguments, you know, but you know, what about Indians and bears or whatever he said? You know, it's fine for Justice Kennedy, but it, there wasn't much evidence at the time that anybody thought you had a constitutionalized right uh, to kill either Indians or bears. Got it. Well, um, a lot of students on our campus and many campuses around the country are very politically oriented or thinking about the upcoming election season. We're in a presidential election year. And you've mentioned many times since 2000, since uh, the Bush versus Gore election, um, that the Electoral College is in need of reform. Uh, what would this reform look like for you, and how would it be implemented? Well, I, I'm a big believer in a national popular, popular vote, which should take place in one single constituency. Let's call it the United States of America, <laughs> uh, in which the states as such would have no part. The states, for this purpose, would cease to exist as political units. Hopefully, we'd actually have a standardized ballot, which would deal with a lot of the anxieties we have about you know, the physical mode of voting. So um, I like this position for a variety of reasons. And as you know, I've, yeah, I've written a lot about this ever since 2000, you know, and, uh, you know, a variety of places. And, you know, uh, book-length articles and uh, you know op-eds and variety of other formats. So, um, so I think there are several reasons. The first is um, I am a big believer in the modern democratic principle of one person, one vote, meaning that a vote should count the same wherever it is cast. And as I'm sure you and your listeners know, uh, the effect of the senatorial bump, meaning that each state gets two electors simply because they're a state. Uh, means that you have a kind of you know distorting mechanism built into the weight of the vote uh, from state to state to state. Okay? So A, I think it corresponds to modern democratic principles. And you know, I'm a big fan of uh, Baker versus Carr and all the other, which I actually remember as a kid. I, mean, I remember as a high school kid, I was really interested uh, when back at Evanston High School you know, in, 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 in those decisions. So that's one argument. Second argument is I think uh, that in opposition to the battleground state phenomenon, uh, the parties would discover they have an incentive to mobilize their electorate wherever they are. You know, if, if you raise this discussion for the people and say, well, you know, but if we have a national popular vote, all the candidates will spend all their time in New York, LA, Chicago, there. You know, you have to have a pretty poor sense of arithmetic <laughs> to think that that would actually be the case. But more important, you know, a vote is a vote is a vote. And you'd want to, your Republicans would actually want to mobilize the vote in Idaho and Wyoming and all those other mount, mountainous wastelands and so on. Uh, you know, that you want to mobilize, and if you sue the parties are competitive, I actually think this would be the advantage of the Republican Party. They might be more competitive nationally right. with a national popular vote than they actually are in terms of the existing structure of the Electoral College. So I think it would give an incentive to uh, you know, come up with mechanisms to mobilize uh, votes everywhere. Uh, three, I would, I would want to do it by Article Five Amendment. I think the nation needs that discussion. Uh, you, know, there's, you may know there's a proposal out there. Actually, there's a guy who's a kind of consulting professor at Stanford named John Koza, who's behind this, who, although I haven't seen anything about this recently, so I don't know where the proposition stands. 
Do you like the idea of having an interstate compact among states, you know, collectively casting 270 votes so that they, they would pledge their electors to, uh, you know, cast their votes for whichever candidate? Similar to the Amar plan or? Similar to the? To the Amar plan? Aquila Amar? Yeah. My buddy? <laughs> uh, well, I think Aquila endorses it. Yeah, I haven't, I, I'd have to see where he wrote, you know, he, 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 he wrote about it. Um, uh, but yeah, I guess Aquila endorses it. I think it's a crazy idea. Keel has a lot of crazy ideas. He's a great guy. A lot of his ideas are, you know, have some problems with them as I read them. Uh, putting that little quibble aside, so actually, I don't think I, I don't. I think that's a suboptimal conclusion. I don't think it would work. The fiction here is that somehow this uh, interstate compact would escape congressional scrutiny. There are some line of cases which suggest that possible. You're talking about fundamental constitutional change. I don't think you could possibly going to. You know, whatever line of Supreme Court precedents you have, and I haven't studied the cases, I don't say they would possibly qualify. And I also think it might be politically unstable. I mean, what's to stop state legislatures from defecting? Uh, I just, so I just, and I think actually, I think the country needs this debate. I don't think we should give up on Article 5. So that's the third point I make. But the fourth point is something I've, you know, I've, and I've actually, I've, I have to lecture on this up at Stanford in a week, actually a week from today, a Constitution Day lecture a few days late. Um, I think now uh, and there's no question this outcome will apply to the, to the 2016 election. The last three presidents and the winner of this year's election uh, are all going to suffer from what I would call legitimacy crisis, meaning that for different reasons, uh, going back to Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama, there have been real attacks on the legitimacy of the, the president's victory. There are different explanations for this. There's no question between Hillary and Clinton and uh, Donald Trump that the same kinds of legitimacy questions will arise. And you know, to say why might insult some of your listeners, so, so I won't go there. So it has occurred to me. You know, this is a hypothesis, and you know, I may, I may be wrong about this, I don't know, but at least I think it's worth entertaining. That to have a national popular election, rather than thinking of the nation as being divided between blocks of blue and red and then battleground states, uh, I think would actually help promote the legitimacy of a presidential election. To say this, this person, again, if, if you get the states out of the picture, if you say it's not just about putting together coalitions of you know blue states and battleground states or red states and battleground states, it really would be the winner of a national population, which I think would uh, incentivize individual voters. I think that would be, I don't think it would be a complete solution, but I think it would be a partial solution, at least a partial remedy to the problem we've been engaged in. But they, there's no doubt in my mind that, uh, you know, the idea that uh, the last three presidents, you know, Bill, Cl Bill Clinton and George W. Bush and uh, Barack Obama have been seen in some senses as ascending to the office illegitimately. I think that's been an aspect of our politics. I think it's destructive of the well-being of the republic that that's been the case. Right. And, and just going off that, and so you mentioned kind of briefly um, it affecting this election cycle with you know Trump and, and uh, Secretary Clinton. Um, how, how else do you think it would affect it if we were able to change to a national popular vote? You mentioned uh, voter turnout would have to increase in uh, Western states and, yeah. and more Republican yeah. states, and, and probably for Democrats. Well, no, too. really, in, in right. all non battleground right. states. Yeah, Every yeah, state, yeah. 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 yeah, so no, I think that's the, well, again, no, no, I think you have a couple of normal principles. I'm just to restate. I think one person, one vote is democratically the right. Look, the better way to think about this scenario I'd like to make 
if you ask yourself, so it, we have a system of voting. It affects both the Senate and obviously the, the Electoral College, which assumes because it overweighs um, the value of votes in small states. It assumes in a kind of inverse sense that the size of the state in which you live is somehow correlated to your political interests. Okay, stop and ask yourself the question whether you're a representative or a voter. Do you ever vote on the basis of the size of the state in which you live? So do you ever ask, what's good for the small states? What's good for the big states? The short answer is no, except there's actually one interesting exception, except when you're talking about rules of voting, where you know you, there's some existing situation and you're already locked into that and you want to protect it, which was exactly the situation in 1787, uh, as it remains today. But in my view, size is not a legitimate interest. You know, um, you know, some, you know, you can be a small state and be highly urbanized. Rhode Island is highly urbanized. You know, I, I think Delaware is highly urbanized. So there's an argument actually. Western states are also highly urbanized. Uh, you know, because they're so arid, you can't support that large a population out on the land. You know, so it's just. But the key thing is, what really matters is well, it's kind of a it's kind of a Madisonian set of factors. Go back and read Federalist 10, which I'm sure being here you guys have read and reread, yeah. <laughs> hopefully know by heart. It is interesting to note that here in an essay about the advantages of a large republic over a small republic, Madison never once mentioned the idea that your membership in a state of different sizes uh, represents a legitimate interest that you want to protect. You know, Madison's whole theory rests upon interests, opinions, and factions. But the idea of forming a confederation of different sized states, of which Madison, of course, was very much against. Madison was a strong proportionalist uh, in 1787. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think the, the omission of the size factor, I don't think that was accidental or incidental. I think it actually, I think in some sense, it's reflective of a kind of, of a premise that's deeply embedded but not formally articulated in that part of Madison's prose. All right. Um, and we always like to end on, what is your personal definition of success, and what advice would you give students in defining success for themselves? Well, I've had a great career, and I'm just, you know, I'm so, you know, I'm so happy, you know, as I like to tell my Stanford students, I must have done something right in a past life that I spent the bulk of my time teaching on the farm. Uh, you know, I don't like it when people use the term passion to define how undergraduates, I mean, this may sound like an 18th century notion where reason should trump passion, and, you know. You know, passion implies a kind of degree of, you know, overcommitment or zeal, or, you know, it doesn't sound quite like a, you know, Epicurean ideal of how you lead the, you know, uh, you know how you lead the best life. So, I don't know, I just, you know, I've been really lucky. I, you know, I had breaks, you know, I, you know, experiments are not, not to say good luck, but I've had good fortune along the way and uh, been happy to take it, uh, advantage of it. Um, I do think you should follow your interests. I mean, you know, we only have one, you know, I'm not a big believer in the afterlife, you know, not for saying what I said, I don't think I had a past life. So that's just a figure of speech when I said I must have done something right uh, in a past life to be able to spend my time with you know, most of my career at, at Stanford. So I think we only get one shot. And I think you want to try to decide, you know, what it is you most want to do, and at least, you know, to try it out. Now that's hard, and then everybody's all these discussions about the economy and so on. So you know, you have to be sensible too. Uh, I'm happy I didn't want to be an actor because then, you know, I'm happy my kids didn't want to go into show business because 
said they have to shoot out their kneecaps so they, you know, pursue a more sensible trade. Well, actually, I do know some. You know, I've had you know, I know some friends who have succeeded in this realm. So, uh, whatever. So, you know, I I don't have a strong philosophy about this. You know, uh, I, I would worry a lot about passion. I think passion has its dangerous moments. But you know, defining your interest and you know, you know, giving the one that comes out on top at least giving it a good shot to see if it's going to work. So that's what I would say. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you again for Professor Rako for joining us. And to all the listeners out there, remember to stay home.